You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. We're so glad that you're here with us today. I want to encourage you too, as we are in this season of Christmas, to spend time in the Lord's house. You know, some of us have come from different, more stricter traditions and backgrounds where it was your days of obligation. Remember those days where you were expected to be? But that's not the way things are for us. But I will say there's something to be said for reverence for the season and making time for the Lord in the middle of all the busyness. Because that's important because we shouldn't forget who this time of the year is about. It's the Christ Mass. It's the celebration of his advent and birth. So let's take some time in the middle of all of our busyness to worship the Lord, whether it be a Sunday or whether it be a Wednesday. Join us for those things and really refocus and center yourself on what it means to be part of this Christmas season. I'll put in another plug for our Wednesday night study, The Case for Christmas. It's going to be a focus on the story of Christmas and the historical accuracy for it. That'll be at 7 on Wednesdays, and I hope that you'll come out for that. We've been in the Advent season, and last week I talked to you about hope. And that hope is not something that you can work up. Hope is not something that you can find within yourself, especially if you're hopeless. It's really hard to say, okay, today I'm going to be hopeful. Today I just hope, and, and sometimes it's just going to work just to, I hope today's not a terrible day at work. I hope my kids behave themselves. I hope my wife doesn't yell at me. I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about you, by the way. So I'm just letting you know that. It has nothing to do with me, don't look at But there are times where we we can't work up hope. Hope looks forward. Hope looks towards someone or something to give them that hope. And so hope is an expectation of what is yet to come. This week in Advent, we're focusing on the second candle, the candle of love. And love is a very basic human need. We have a very basic physical needs. We all have need for food and for water, and for sleep, and for air to breathe. And those are necessary for our physical well-being. But we also have an emotional need as well. The need to love and to be loved is is a necessity for our emotional well-being. And so much of that focuses, uh, so much of all that centers around the desire to be loved or to have an object of love. So much of our life uh, revolves around that, uh, that we need to be loved and to feel love. And um, so some people, either they live their life out of a place of comfort in the sense that they are loved, or they spend their entire life trying to fill that hole of the, that where they haven't been loved or haven't felt love. So I think most of the, the world that we live in, the people that we come in contact with, they find themselves in one of those two categories. Either they are loved and they feel confident and comfortable in that love, whether it be the love of family or a love of a spouse or the love of their children, or they're running around in life trying to find someone to love them or to compensate for the lack of love in their life. Love is not something you can give yourself. Now, don't get me wrong. There are people who love themselves and love themselves a lot. You can tell by talking to them because um, they'll talk about themselves more than they'll talk about what's going on in your life. So you can tell a person 
that they love themselves. So um, it's, you can, and it is possible to love yourself, but that can devolve into narcissism and pride pretty easily. And it is important that the scriptures say that you must love your neighbor as you love yourself. So the concern and care that you have for yourself, you must be able to show for your neighbor. And I will say that it's important that you do love yourself in some way. And what I'm talking about that is being able to, to know that you are loved in the sight of God, that you are dearly loved in the sight of God. That's important for us to understand and realize. So much of Christianity um, that I've seen is based around guilt and shame, and so that you serve God out of guilt and shame and fear instead of serving God out of love, which is really the whole basis of the gospel in the first place. So love is essentially important for that. And I also have found, too, that when you lack a sense of love for yourself in terms of your self-confidence, you tend to not have a lot of love for other people. So as growing up as someone who is an insecure little boy growing up and uh, growing up into a man that's semi-insecure now, Uh, you recognize there's an importance in being able to understand that you are loved by God, that you are loved by others, and that you don't need to try and be anybody else than who you are to be loved. Does that make sense? And by doing so, you, you can extend yourself beyond yourself because if you're only focused on what you aren't, either to yourself or other people, it's gonna be hard to, to show concern for others. So there is a balance here. I'm trying to kind of get that right out of the gate. But you can't just naturally love yourself. I found that the times that I've been, uh, where I've started to have a, a, a love and appreciation for who I am in Christ is because someone showed that to me. Someone took the time to, to show me that I was concerned for and loved. And when that happened, then my view of myself changed and I recognized what I needed to do with my life. So loving and being loved is a wonderful remedy for insecurity. Now, mankind's love is one way. The way that the world loves is they love based on appearance. People love things that look beautiful to them. They shun things that are unattractive to them. Mankind's love, the world's love, is emotionally driven, where it's based on their feelings. So if they feel loved one day, they're loved. And if they don't feel loved another day, then they're not loved. But that's not the nature of God's love. God's love is not a feeling-based love. Because if it was, we'd have some days where we feel like we're really loved by God, and then there's days where we don't feel like we're loved by Him at all, but that does not, that's not truth. That's our emotions. Maybe if you're in a relationship with somebody, and, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend or husband and wife, and there's some days where you're like, well, I feel very much loved today, but I don't feel loved on another day. We, that's an insecure place. That's a place where you kind of feel like you're unstable. And if you've ever been uh, with someone who has that deep emotional need and insecurity, then you know that, that can be very exhausting to try and keep up as well. But God's love is not a feelings-based or emotion-based love. Mankind's love, the world's love, looks for reciprocation. If you do this for me, I'll do that for you, and that will show me that you love me. But God's love is not a reciprocation love. It's not you do this for me, and I will love you. Or if you do nice things for me, I'll love you more. And if you do small things for you, I'll love you less. That's not how it works. God's love is different. And perhaps one of the reasons why the world finds it so difficult to receive God's love 
is because they're looking for God's love according to those standards. Well, if I do more things, if I serve more during the Thanksgiving to Christmas season, then that'll be good. God will love me more because I'm doing good things, right? God's love doesn't change on that. Well, I worshiped last Sunday, and the worship was really good, and I felt really close to God, so God loved me more in that moment and was more present in that moment than he was on a Sunday where maybe I didn't feel like I was into the worship as much. No, it doesn't change that at all. God's not like that. It's not emotionally driven. So people have trouble receiving the love of God, and it could be partially because they're trying to quantify according to the world's way of loving. But God's love is different. Allow me to explain. Let's look at Psalm 136 together. How do I know we need to be reminded that God loves us? Now, there's times where we're like, okay, I know God loves me because there's songs about it, you know. I'm told about it, you know. I'm reminded of it. But how many know that there's times where you just don't feel like you're very much loved or lovely or worth loving? But it should take some comfort. We should take some comfort in the fact that it's not based on any of those things. God's love is a, a measure of who he is and an extension of his goodness and his benevolence to us that's not contingent upon our actions or the way that we you know, view or understand things. Instead, it is completely contingent on who he is. Now, Psalm 136, I'm going to look at this today in the NIV because in this particular passage, uh, the New King James lists uh, his uh, uh, love endures forever as his mercy endures forever. And most translations look at this particular Hebrew word as meaning love. And so it was written, and it's a fairly long psalm, but we're, not, we're going to just look at parts of it, but it was written as a responsive reading. The priest would get up in the temple, and he would read the first part, and the people would read the second part, the italicized part, which was a a repetition of a particular phrase, was the part of the people. I'm not expecting you to do that, but if as I'm reading it, you feel the, the, the unction to repeat it, then go ahead. You can do that, because it's a reminder to the people of what God has done and his love for us. And there's that one phrase, his love endures Forever. So let's take a look at Psalm 136 together. We can just put that up on the screen, or you can follow along with me in the Word today. I believe we have it. I think we have it. Why is it there? We have a confidence monitor. I've lost confidence because it's not there. So, all right, so let's look at this together. Psalm 136. It says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him alone does great wonders. His love endures forever. By Who by his understanding has made the heavens. His love endures forever. Who spread out the earth upon the waters. His love endures forever. Who made the great lights. His love endures forever. The sun to govern the day, his love endures forever. And the moon and the stars to govern the night, his love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, his love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, his love endures forever. With a mighty hand and outstretched arm, his love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, his love endures forever. 
and brought Israel through the midst of it. His love endures forever, but swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. His love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, his love endures forever. Now I want you to look at verse 23 here. And it continues on through just three more verses. So if you can hang with me on that, let's finish strong with this, okay? Verse 23. He remembered us in our lowly estate. His love endures forever. And freed us from our enemies. His love endures forever. Who gives food to every creature. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. Do you get the idea? There's a little bit of repetition there, and I think there's a reason for that, because there are times where we need to be reminded that his love endures forever. Not part-time, not some of the times, not when you're good, not when you're in your church, not when just you're going about your life or you particularly feel close to God or you did your devotions and you worship that day. His love endures forever. It's not a part-time, temporary, or a minimal agreement. His love is everlastingly enduring forever and ever. Amen. By recognizing that, notice, notice what the psalmist does, which is a consistent theme throughout. I'm going to remind myself of what God's done. I'm going to list off all the times that God's been good. I'm going to recall and bring to memory things that he's done for me, and I'm going to recall and bring to mind things that he did for our people that I wasn't even alive for. I wasn't alive for the parting of the Red Sea, but I heard about it, and it's a testimony that his love endures forever. What else can the Word of God teach us about God's love? Well, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 tells us that God's love is steadfast. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. What does it mean to be steadfast? Steadfast means to stand by someone. Through the most difficult moments, the good and the bad, a steadfast person is there through it all. So when we understand the... uh, uh, you know, the steadfast love, when we understand the love of the Lord endures forever, we know it's an everlasting love, but we also know that it's a love that's not going to cut and run when things get hard in your life. When things have gone badly for you and everyone else that you know has distanced themselves from you for one reason or another, the love of the Lord is steadfast and stands by you, faithful and true. The love of the Lord is unchanging. Psalm 36, 5 and Psalm 107, verse 1, God's love is unchanging. God's love is not fickle. It doesn't get kind of uh, enraptured with something and then loses interest. I'm a person that I enjoy hobbies, whether it be collecting baseball cards or whether it be collecting coins or whether it be, uh, you know, playing baseball or playing golf or different things like that, there are things that I enjoy doing that I try to kind of unwind with because I'm wound pretty tightly most of the time. Um, And so when I do those things, kind of sometimes I'll immerse myself in that. But as typical with some of the Valerys, like my brother and myself, uh, we have a little bit of that addictive personality thing going on where we kind of get obsessed with something for three or four months period of time, and then we drop it. 
in our interest. When we've kind of delved as far as we can go into that thing, and we said we've, we've collected this, or we've added that, or we've grown our collection, and then our interest kind of wanes, and we go on to something else. But God's love's not like that. He's not someone who says, you know, I'm really into you when you first got saved, but now that you've been saved for 25 or 50 years, you're less interesting to me now. God doesn't act that way. God's love is not fickle where he goes, well, he didn't say good morning to me today, or she didn't do her devotions this morning, so I love him less, or I love her less. God's love is unchanging. His love does not change. And the reason why that is, why? is because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So if he's unchanging, and his word is unchanging, then his love for us is unchanging, whereas we are kind of like, you know, chasing butterflies in life, really. We're kind of just, whatever catches our fancy, whatever is, is either stressing us or impressing us, we chase those things. Whatever's stressing us, we get really wrapped up in that thing, and we're kind of like, oh no, what's going to happen? What's going to happen next year? What's going to happen six months from now? And we get stressed in that, or we get impressed by something. We're really impressed with someone, or some music, or some show, or anything like that. And we get wrapped up in that, and we kind of obsess over those things. But then it kind of comes and goes. The Lord isn't like that. His love is unchanging. His love is also unconditional, the scriptures tell us. Romans 5, 6 through 8. We'll take a look at that together. Unconditional love. Verse 6 says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man one will die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were apart from God, Christ died from us. That's the expression of his love. His love for all of mankind is the same. Why? Because he created them. He created them for a particular purpose. He created them, and when he said they were created, he said it was good when he created man and woman. Mankind was meant to be good, but then fell into sin. But it didn't change the fact that God loves his creation and the love that he has for him extended himself to show forth mercy and to show forth grace and to send Jesus so that he could show us the way to the Father and make a way so that our sin could be forgiven and atoned for so that we could have a relationship with God, a relationship that had been broken by sin. And God took the first step of the demonstration of that love. He says, listen, I know you're far from me. I know you're enemies of me right now. But I want you to know I still love you. And let me demonstrate it by sending the most valuable thing to me, my son, my only begotten son. I'm sending him to you so that he can show you the way to me. And then he can die so that your sins might be atoned for. He expresses his love. But how many know that love can be rejected too? God's love is an unconditional love. The Greek word for unconditional is agape or agapao. It means unconditional love, not something that you earn, but it's something that God's given to us without condition. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13, the, the love chapter. It doesn't look at our appearance. Thank goodness, right? 
How many know, like, if you had to be handsome or beautiful to get into heaven, some of us might not make it, uh, you know? So, like, thank God that God doesn't just take the pretty, you know? I'm, I'm counted in that group because God doesn't just take the pretty. You know, so aren't you glad that it has nothing to do with your appearance, has nothing to do with your social standing? You know, whether you were poor or whether you were born into wealth, God's not taking and saying, you know what, like he's picking a kickball team. You know, I'm going to pick those people here, and maybe you get picked last. That's not the way it works with God. God pick, doesn't pick us according to our social standing like the rest of the world does. He goes, I want to know that person because of their status. I want to know them because of what they have or don't have. doesn't look at those things or how we lived. God's love for us was while we were sinners— was present for everyone. He loved us when we were sinners, and he loves us even more so now that we've decided to follow him. But God's unconditional love is not about meeting criteria to to earn his love. His love was always there. We just need to accept and receive his love and acknowledge that we got to forsake the love of ourselves and selfishness and sin and say, okay, God, I want to follow you. I choose to believe in you, I choose to leave my old life behind, and I want to walk in love and obedience to you. God doesn't cancel his love when we don't meet certain conditions. His love is still present. Know that he still loves you. Now, I should point out that many Christians mistake God's discipline for a lack of love. Now, there's been times where you might have gone through something, a season in your life, where you might say to yourself, well, you know, a lot of bad things have happened to me, so maybe God's forgotten me. Maybe God doesn't love me anymore. And we have to kind of recall our memory back to these scriptures that, no, God's love for you hasn't changed. So if God's love for you hasn't changed, then what could be going on here? Sometimes we mistake the Lord's discipline for a lack of love. God can still love you. I'm going to shock you for a minute. God can still love you and bring correction into your life. He can still love you and correct you. He can still love you and discipline you. In fact, the scriptures tell us that discipline is an indication of his love for us. Well, you're saying, well, Pastor Dan, does that mean because I'm going through some bad things, I lost someone in my life, I lost my job because I did something wrong? No. We have to understand that we have to delineate what's going on. If you're serving God, loving God, and and walking with him, understand that the bad things that happen to us are because we are in direct opposition to the enemy of our soul, Satan. So when we decide to set ourselves up on the side of what is right and do what God is, is pleasing in God's sight, know that the enemy will come against you and that people of this world will come against you and it has nothing to do with the fact of whether you're serving God right or wrong. If you're walking according to his word and his precepts, if you're doing your best to follow him and you're encountering these attacks, they're probably not from God. They're from the enemy. They're from other people who hate what you represent. But if you're away from God, it could be that the Lord's trying to instruct you and get you back on the right track. Take a look at Hebrews 12, 6 through 11. I think this is so important for us to get a hold of today is that we think that God's love has nothing to do with correction. We think that God's love, in fact, we bristle at the idea that why should we be corrected on anything? But the truth is, a person that follows God and walks humbly before him will receive instruction and receive correction. The book of Proverbs tells us this. 
is that when it says, you know, a fool despises correction, but a wise man will accept it with humility. And so I don't know about you, I want to be a wise person. And I'll be honest with you, there are times when I get confronted on things that I'm not a happy camper. There's times where, like, someone might point out a flaw and I kind of, like, get down on myself for it. Or maybe get a little defensive over it. My family might know that pretty well, that sometimes I get a little defensive about my flaws. I know that doesn't happen to you, but I know I can only speak for me. It happens to me that sometimes I get a little defensive about the flaws in my life, and I know that they're there. But when we look at these things, you know, sometimes when we go through stuff, it could be that if we're away from him, that he's trying to bring us back into a place where we are aligned with him again. Let's look at the verses together. It says, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while that they thought was best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we might share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Let's be honest, we don't like discipline. But discipline shows that there's love and concern for us. God wants us to turn out okay, just like we want our own children to turn out okay and turn out well. But sometimes we mistake discipline for a lack of love from God, and we mistake correction for rejection. Let let me say that again. There are times where we mistake God's correction for his rejection, thinking that he's abandoned us. But what he's doing is moving us towards maturity and greater dependence upon him. So, you know, we've all seen situations where we've seen, you know, we've seen parents whose kids are out of control. We're like, thank God, my kid's not like that, which they are. They're just not doing it in the supermarket. When everybody can see them, they're just acting up somewhere else, right? So we, we look at some, a child without discipline and go, my goodness, that's a, that's a mess right there. Or if they grow up into adults and they're kind of just wild and reckless, you're like, where, where were their parents? What did their parents raise them up? And honestly, sometimes you can raise your kids good and they still go off and do whatever they want. But they're adults then at that point. You, know, you can only impose uh, upon them and imprint upon them godly precepts and character with the hope that they'll walk and follow the Lord with their life. There are some many good Christians and brothers and sisters in Christ who are pulling their hair out with their children, their grown children, because they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. You've got to allow this passage of Scripture to take hold. Are you hearing me? Lord, what are you going to do about that? When the Lord loves, he disciplines. Does he love your kids? Yes. Will he discipline them? Yes. To bring them back to the Lord and to you? Yes. Will that be hard for you to see? Absolutely. Do you trust him to take care of your kids? Yes. So that's something we have to release to him and allow for him to do. Now, I want you to think about this. If you're, if you're not sure if this is right or true, I, I want you to bring to mind the, the idea of the nation of Israel. God loves you. He doesn't cast you off when you fail. 
consider his covenant with Israel. God made a covenant with Abraham, with Moses, with David, that he would preserve them as a people and make them a blessing to the entire earth. And along the way, they wavered in their devotion to the Lord. When they sinned, they got into idolatry, they mistreated each other. So what did God do? God didn't stop loving them, but rather he brought discipline in there to their lives to correct them. And so like when Israel strayed from it, God didn't say like, okay, I'm done with you forever, but instead I'm going to discipline you and I'm going to use someone else to be the instrument of discipline. In fact, sometimes uh, in the Old Testament, uh, I believe the Lord referred to Babylon as the rod of correction for Israel to take them off into captivity for 70 years because of their idolatry. But eventually he would bring them back to their home so they could reestablish themselves again. You know what put them there? Idolatry. They, they, were, they loved God, but everything else. They loved God, but they loved like other idols and they worshiped other things. And they kind of mixed the two. He said, well, we worship God and Baal and Ashereth and these idols in the same temple, which God was like, that's enough. I can't, I can't even right now. So he took the, sent them off into Babylon for 70 years. You know what's an interesting thing that happened in Babylon for 70 years? They gave up idolatry, like forever. Like they never went back to it after that. Why? Because they're like, that's what got us here. I'm not going back to that again. You know, they wrote, they wrote Psalms and they wrote uh, Daniel wrote some of his writings. Ezekiel wrote some of his writings in the, that period of captivity. And believe it's, it's, it's some of the things that Isaiah wrote that the wise men, the magi, read that led them to Bethlehem to be able to be there for the nativity. So, like, it wasn't a complete loss for them to go there. But what God was doing in that season of discipline, saying, you don't need those things anymore. I want you to follow me and me alone. And he didn't stop loving them. He just corrected them. And the times in our life we have to recognize amongst ourselves, is God correcting us in this season we're in? He eventually would bring them back and establish their nation once again. But his love for them never changed. That's old covenant. But we have a better covenant today. Am I right? The scriptures tell us that, that we have a better covenant today. And we're partakers in this new covenant in Christ, but yet... The way he deals with us still is still through correction. Demonstrates his love for us and his desire to return to him. His love has not changed, but we must ask ourselves, am I drifting from him and is he trying to get my attention? And there's times where God needs to get our attention in a very pronounced way. And in those ways we pray. When we're desperate, we pray. When we're in pain, we pray. When we go through sadness, we pray. And the idea is that we return back to the things that we abandoned in the first place. God's love for us hasn't changed. How do we know this is true? Because he demonstrated it through the sending of his son. Before we ever knew who God was, before we even heard the name of Jesus, do you know that he loved you first? To be loved by him first and foremost, he loved us. To have that understanding that there is love for us was a precious and tremendous thing. When we think about these sort of things, it should remind us that, you know, this love is eternal in nature. It, it, it was for us before we existed. It was before us, uh, for us before the world began. And that it has its demonstration and personification in the person of Jesus. If we should ever be tempted to question the love that God has for us, 
we should look to Jesus and his life and how he lived and what he taught and what he did as a demonstration that Jesus loves us. We should look to the cross and say, you know, I know that I'm loved by God because he did that for me. And let me tell you today, he didn't just do it for the other Christians sitting in this room and not for you. He did it for you too. Because the demonstration of God's love, the personification of God's love is in Jesus. God so loved that he gave. And he didn't just give, okay, here's a, here's a list of rules. And if you follow those, you'll be saved. He didn't just give a, a, a covenant or a precept or a contract. He says, if you do these things, you'll get to heaven. But he gave of himself a visual example of his love. Now, hopefully you know that you are loved by God. You should have known that from the point that we read Psalm 136. His love endures forever. So what are we to do now that we know that he loves us? John 15, verses 9 through 17, gives us uh, some instruction on that. Jesus says, As the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command of you. No longer do I call you servants for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all the things that I heard of from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit, and fruit that remains. That whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you, that, I lo- that you love one another. So what do we learn from this? What should we do now that we know that we're loved by God? Number one, remain in his love. Abide in his love. That means in the moments when you're tempted to kind of walk away from him because you don't feel loved anymore, it means you shouldn't. In the moments where you feel as though, you know, you've, you messed up too badly and there's no hope and there's no forgiveness, no redemption, remember that you're loved by God and love is what sent Christ to the cross for you and that you are forgiven in Him. Remain in it. When you're tempted to stray off to go and look for love in the places that you thought you found love before, don't do it. Instead, remain in His love. Secondly, Keep his commands. Live the way that Christ wants you to live. He says, if you want to remain and abide in me, then follow my commandments. In fact, he said, this is how you show your love for me, by keeping my commandments. And you're saying, well, Pastor Dan, that sounds semi-legalistic when you talk about it that way. Does that mean I have to keep the commandments of Scripture as, in some sort of legalistic sense? No, that's not what I'm talking about at all. If you've listened to my preaching for any period of time, you know that that's not the way that I, I kind of do things. What I'm saying is this. Is like If you've ever parented children and you've told them to clean their room or wash the dishes or vacuum the floor or to be home by a certain time and they haven't because they forgot or because they just didn't want to do it or 
you know, what comes across as a simple request has now become a more urgent request with um, emotion involved. Let's say it that. So it goes from just a simple request. It's like, hey, clean your room. Hey, clean your room. Hey, clean your room. You know, it changes everything after that because it went from just a casual request and conversation to a a full-blown, like, outburst of anger. You know that in those moments when you're not listened to, you don't feel very loved, do you? In fact, you might feel disrespected. You might feel, um, you know what I mean, parents, right? You know, you understand what I'm talking about. So, like, (laughs) not to isolate the kids in here, like, okay, I was a kid once, too, and I didn't always follow we could even go and say, okay, spouses, when your spouse says to do something for the third or fourth time. Right, right. So we're going to leave that alone. In any case. So, uh, <laughs> so it, we, the idea is that following the commands of the Lord is not because it's a legalistic sense, but it's a demonstration of love for the Lord when you say, I'm listening, God. You've laid down my heart. I'm going to do it because it's pleasing to you. And instead of doing all the other things that I think are pleasing to you, I'm going to do what you ask of me when you ask of me to do it. God is looking for us to follow his ways. The third thing is to love one another. It's like your love will be, your love for me, he says, a new commandment I have given you, that you love one another, even when it's hard, even when things are difficult. Love one another. Act in love towards each other. Listen, loving one another doesn't mean like, you know, when someone insults you, you just want to give them a hug. Or if they do something, like, awful to you, you say, come here, buddy, I just love you. No, it's not about that. It's about, like, what does love demand and require? What did Jesus do when people were throwing shade his way? The way he acted and conducted himself was still a high road above board. And that's the way that we need to, you know, conduct ourselves when people are doing things intentionally just to get under your skin. Think of how Jesus answered Think of the way that Jesus answered, that he answered in such a way that he confounded those who were confronting him. That they didn't know what to do with him because of what he, the way he was conducting himself. They had no words. They were silenced. Live that way. So love one another. God is looking for us to be an extension of that love. Now love usually requires a token of that love. Something of value. I was thinking about this when I was getting ready for this sermon that I asked my wife to marry me 24 years ago around this time of year. 24 years ago. Now, for some of you, that's not a long time at all. Some of you are like, 24, no big deal. It's been 50. I get it. Much respect. I'm impressed. Thank you. But for me, 24 years is like half my lifetime at this point. And right before Christmas, I gave her the engagement ring that she still wears to this day. And I offered her a symbol of my love. My love in that moment was not, you know, the symbol of my love in that, that moment was a little piece of jewelry that, that I, they offered to her, and that was the symbol of my love. My love was bigger than that. But at the time, at, at the 24-year-old me with a limited salary, I was like, here's my love. This is it. And you can accept it or reject. For me, it was valuable. For some others, they might say, well, that, that wasn't a very impressive ring. It didn't matter. That was a symbol an extension of my love. And I, and I got down on my knee to give it to her, and she, in that moment, she could accept it or reject it. I think you know the answer. And when she accepted that token of my love, our relationship took on a whole different level. 
a lifelong commitment to each other as husband and wife. In fact, in Ephesians 5, 22 through 32, the Apostle Paul uses the illustration of marriage to explain that the commitment that Christ has for his church is just like that. And when we accept the token of Christ's love for us, then we begin a committed relationship with God through Christ. And God gave us a precious token of his love through his son. The Heavenly Father at Jesus' baptism said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. The Father sent his one and only son into the world that they might believe and not perish. And Jesus died on the cross for that love, dying one of the most excruciating deaths of the ancient world. But that's not the end of the story. He rose again, having victory over death in the grave. And our salvation came at a high cost, the death of Jesus. So when we think about that token of love, like, God, how do I know that you love me? And we're still demanding tokens of his love. God, if you love me, you would give me this job. God, if you love me, my kids would be serving me, serving you right now. God, if you love me, like, you would heal so-and-so. If you love me, you would do these things. But God's already shown you the token of his love. He's already presented it to you. There's no greater love, Jesus said, than, than this. For a man to lay down his life for his friends, I call you friends. And he laid his life down. Now, he doesn't have to give us any more tokens of his love. How many know if you're in a relationship, it'd be nice if you got a token of love once in a while? Like flowers, you know, going out to dinner, something like that, just to show me, to remind me that you still love me, not just the ring I gave you 24 years ago, right? Uh, we need something more than that. But understand that the one thing, that one token of love began the relationship, and then there, along the way, there'll be moments where God shows his love to you. Answered prayer, kindness, provision, grace, you know, his presence in worship. There'll be times where he does that. But even if he didn't do any of that, the one token of his love still remains. And he still loves us. And he still cares for us. Don't throw away the love that God's given you just because right now you don't feel very loved. He's given us this great token of his love in Christ. Let's not throw it away. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.